0: Good morning. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent his friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even Israel have I found such faith, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Altogether, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Please uh, remain, remain standing. Um, I'm going to invite Ty up and pray for him. Um, you guys, I was in Montana this week. Uh, Montana's spectacular, by the way. And uh, I asked Ty to come guest preach for us. Um, Ty is a member of our church, his wife Karen, uh, he teaches Latin because he's a nerd, graduated from Westminster West with his Master's in Divinity, he's an uh, intern in our church, and we are so uh, blessed to sit under your preaching, Ty, so let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for your word, thank you for Ty. We recognize, Lord, that our hearts are stubborn and rocky, and we ask that you would uh, make them fleshy and soft, ready to receive you. Uh, illumine your sacred scriptures by your spirit, uh, that we wouldn't be only hearers of the word, but doers, and that Jesus would be exalted. For we pray in his name. Amen. All right, buddy. It's all you. Can you guys all hear me okay?
2: Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. Uh, Like Ronnie said, my name is Ty. I'm one of the interns here at Denver Prez. Uh, But I I need to do a little bit of truth-telling about that title, intern title, before we begin uh, because I'm actually starting to self-identify as, like, a super intern now. Uh, Not because, like, I'm better or more advanced than than any of the other interns or anything like that, um, but because, like, I never graduated from intern school. Like, this is my second round as a church intern. Um, and I only realized this last week when we were celebrating everybody else's graduations. So like, I never graduated. You know? um, so you think I get the hint, but I didn't. I didn't. Um, so if you're new with us today, like I'm sorry, but you just came on Super Intern Sunday. Uh, we're so glad you're here. Um, and I do hope that you come back next week when things go back to normal. Uh, normally, we'd be going through the Gospel of Mark. But t- today, we're taking a detour from that series to explore the Gospel of Luke. So I don't know if you're into podcasts. I'm probably way too into podcasts. I love podcasts. Uh, but there was a podcast that kind of uh, shook the wider religious world that we lived in last year. And it really, it really shook me too. Um, I actually listened to the whole series twice because I was just so challenged by it. And one of the things I just couldn't stop thinking about was how churches begin to lose their identity as a community of Jesus when they start to build a movement around one person who's just not Jesus. Um, So I'm referring to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Uh, Maybe some of you know about it. Maybe you've listened to it. If you haven't, I would absolutely recommend that you listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Uh, It retells the personal experiences of the people who were just like along for the ride as this small city church plant just like exploded from a a small, faithful church into a worldwide movement and then collapse, like, overnight. And uh, some of the pastor's reflections and the parts that they played in this rise and tragic fall, uh, they were really sad on the one hand, but they were also, like, really insightful and helpful. Uh, They sensed that they were departing from their original vision, and yet they just didn't know how to course-correct, And looking back, some of them noticed a change within themselves that may have led to this this growing blindness within themselves that they couldn't couldn't really um, know how to course correct. And uh, some of them described it this way. They said they went from, from listening to the teachings of Jesus and just being undone by his love and forgiveness and grace to just getting to work building the kingdom of God. Like that's what caused their blindness. And the sad and and unintentional result was that they ended up building um, a kingdom that looked more like the empires of this world, more so than the kingdom of God. So the question for us as we explore this, this story in Luke 7 is how do we avoid seeing ourselves as owners who build their way into the kingdom and embrace our identities as guests who receive the kingdom of God as a gift, okay? And and we get like a very straightforward, like simple, but not simplistic answer to this, right? Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So poorness, for whatever reason, is like a passport that we need to enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus isn't saying that poverty or homelessness or food insecurity or any other subhuman condition like that is acceptable. Like, he's just just not. What he's saying is that the core trait that separates the citizens of his kingdom from the citizens of other kingdoms is, is poorness, okay? And because poorness is like an antidote that alleviates our need to possess and to control, And then replaces it with the willingness and openness to receive God's gifts as gifts. So this is where Luke 7 comes into our story. Because this story is actually meant to shape us into the kind of people who embody this ideal of poorness that Jesus holds up and blesses. So let's listen to the story as an invitation to once again align ourselves with the counterintuitive values of the kingdom of God. So we stop building our own little kingdoms and so that we can embrace the one that Jesus offers to us as a gift. So let's rediscover the kingdom of Jesus by exploring kind of three themes that that emerge in this text. Uh, First of all, the upside-down kingdom. Second, the faith of kingdom owners. And then third, the faith of kingdom guests. So let's start with the the upside-down kingdom. Um, Jesus just finished describing... His upside down kingdom in his Sermon on the Plain speech, which is what the sayings refer to in verse one. So, our story in chapter seven fits into a larger block of stories that goes all the way from chapter four, all the way through chapter eight. So, at the beginning of chapter four, Jesus launches his public ministry in Nazareth by reading from an Isaiah scroll. He reads from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, which says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, and freedom for prisoners, new sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. So Jesus reads the scripture, sits down, and then provocatively says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your your sights. (laughs) So Jesus' Jewish audience identified themselves as the poor, and freedom meant revolution from Roman oppression. But when Jesus identifies the poor as widows and lepers in that unwanted, ugly Gentile territory, they try to throw them off a cliff because it doesn't match their kind of nationalist expectations. So the rest of Luke 4 through 8 then narrates the coming of the kingdom of God to the poor and then defines who they are. So they include people who are sick and disabled, people who are possessed by demons or ceremonially unclean, people with low social status, like women and children, and then social outsiders like those from other ethnicities, or people who've even made themselves unwanted because of poor life choices. So thinking about the wide variety of life experiences captured in these stories, uh, one scholar thinks that Jesus' care for undesirables would better capture his life purpose, not just his ministry to the poor, but his care for undesirables. And it's not that they're undesirable to God, right? They're, undes- they're labeled undesirable by the stigmatizing social standards of the first century. So when you understand Jesus' mission in this way, that he came for undesirables, you understand that the centurion also qualifies as one of those poor, undesirable people because he's a non-Jew living in Israel, right? A non-Jew whose job it is to reinforce Rome's oppressive military presence, to make sure that the Jews pay their taxes and don't start any rebellions. So this guy, like, he has no social capital to bargain with, like, no social capital, right? He's not getting any friend requests from his Jewish neighbors on his Galilean Facebook page. Like, he's just not. He's just not. He's an outsider of outsiders in his social location. So I think we need to pause here and just let Jesus care for undesirable people like you and me. We just, like, we just need to sit with this and let it shape us, okay? Because it's a beautiful teaching. It's a beautiful teaching. And like for me, it's one of the most compelling things about Jesus because Jesus just has this like really bad habit. Of like inviting inviting all the wrong people to his parties, right? Like, did you ever notice that whoever like society says no to, Jesus says yes. Like, come, like you're a guest guest of honor at my table. Like, let's celebrate you. Like, Jesus just can't help but to move toward all of the unwanted and neglected and hurt people of this of this world. That's just like his default attitude, and he elevates those people out of their shame, and gives them new meaning and purpose with, inside of his own kingdom. Like, like, who does that? Like, who does that? Like, kings don't do this. Kings only ally themselves with powerful people who are going to protect their interests, right? They don't turn nobodies into somebodies unless there's something in it for them. But Jesus does it out of sheer kindness and generosity because his default desire is to bless. To bless us. So if you feel unimportant, or left out, or ignored, if you feel burnt out because you're trying to impress everybody around you all the time, if you feel like you've somehow exhausted God's grace, and you should probably just go hide in, away in the corner, like like hear me when I say this. Hear me, like listen to me. Listen to me. Like God loves you. Okay, God loves you. God loves you first. Jesus moves towards those kinds of people first because he notices them, right? And he wants you to find your identity and sense of belonging in him because you're enough. You're enough and you don't have to prove yourself, okay? In fact, God is so willing to prove his love to you that every time you run away, he runs after you. Like the father of the prodigal son who anxiously awaits his son's arrival every single day your Heavenly Father is more than willing to welcome you home every time, every time you run away. On the other hand, if you've somehow convinced yourself that God's accepted you because you're strong and impressive and successful, because you can play an important role in building his kingdom, or because you can leverage your power and your resources for his glory, like, uh, just remember... Jesus plays by a different set of rules, okay? He doesn't privilege high achievers. Uh, he doesn't smash that subscribe button now because you're an influencer. He doesn't double tap a divine like button uh, to show his approval of you or retweet your latest accomplishments. Like, and you're not just, you're not hashtag blessed just because you show up to church. Um, God turns all of those sacred, sacred status symbols we create, like, onto their heads, Right? God takes sides with the hurt and the wounded people of this world against the winners to shame their power and their pride. Because in the wisdom of God, weakness is better than strength. So that's, that's the kind of double-sided picture we get here of, of Jesus's upside-down kingdom. But what about, what about these people who act like kingdom owners? How does their... Uh, how does their self-understanding block their entry into the kingdom of God? Let's look at verses 2 through 5 uh, one more time. And I want, you, I want you to notice, first of all, uh, the kind of people that Jesus, uh, that the centurion sends to Jesus. So your translation says that he sends uh, elders of the Jews. Um, but these men have very important social, social standing within their community. They're some of the highest-ranking political and religious figures in all of Israel. They're more like Jewish patriarchs, right? Older men who sit on the highest Jewish court of the land, known as the Sanhedrin. So they not only represent their people's interests under Roman occupation, but they shape and they guide them, uh, which means they're elites, right? These are upper-class Jewish elites. So the centurion sends elites to Jesus, uh, later, the centurion will send friends to Jesus, but a different word is used there. Here, something more informal is impl- implied by the word sends. Uh, our word, like commission or command, would probably get at it a little better. So here's the question. The centurion sends elites to a homeless traveling rabbi. Like, you know that's who Jesus is, right? He's a homeless traveling rabbi. So why do the elders say yes to the task if it's presumably below them? And why does the centurion have to command them rather than just ask, ask for their help? All of these social tensions are playing themselves out in this scene. And it's a very strange one. Like, it's very strange the way these Jewish elders talk to Jesus. Uh, if you were in the upper echelons of society, would you plead earnestly with people who are below you? Like it says in verse four. Would you suddenly represent your political and religious rival as a potential ally who's worthy of your partnership and protection? Like you would only do that if your goal is to manipulate and control some situations so that it works out in your favor, right? That's what the Jewish elders are doing here. Uh, They're acting like politicians on the campaign trail who just need more votes from their base, right? But they're not just delivering some stump speech to Jesus. They're trying to recruit him because they're convinced that Jesus is, is a revolutionary messiah who wants to overthrow the Romans, just like Jesus' audience at Nazareth thought. And now that he's a man of the people, the Jewish elders want Jesus to lead and to mobilize their uprising. And you can tell, you can tell the Jewish elders are thinking along these lines because of the surprising way they describe the centurion. Remember, the centurion is a military employee of Rome, okay? He's a symbol of Jewish oppression. His job is to enforce the gospel of Caesar, right? The Pax Romana. But the Jewish elders present him as a traitor to his homeland in verse five. He loves our nation, not the one he's from, right? But our nation, and that's why he built our synagogue because he's a Jewish loyalist. Right? He's willing to convert. He might even accept circumcision and become the true Jew. So if political revolution is on the horizon, the Jewish elders have, have found two perfect allies for their cause. Right? One Jewish radical who can rally the lower class and one Roman defector who can draft the blueprints of the takeover. Or so they think. So they think. But before we start uh, criticizing their hidden agenda, and how they might be projecting this onto Jesus. I just want us to think about this for a moment. Like, would it be reasonable for a first century Jewish community to read the Old Testament and think, yeah, like, God's going to free us from our Roman enemies. Like, of course. Of course. Have you heard of the book of Exodus? That's like the whole point. Right? It's the hope of the prophets, too. God's going to restore Israel and judge the nations. That's, that's like what salvation is in the Old Testament. So if the Jewish elders are not some crazy extremists who are projecting their wild expectations onto Jesus, then like who are they? And how have they become misled? Uh, here's why this is important for us to ask. Because if they can become blind to their wandering, even while they're so sure they're on the right, they're heading in the right direction, then we can too. Like we can too, right? There's nothing stopping us from walking down the same path, the same path as the Mars Hills pastors, right, slowly drifting from their purpose, but just unable to see it. And I think we can trace how this this kind of growing blindness works with a kind of silly example uh, from sports. Uh, By the way, I love sports. Uh, I'm confident my Warriors will win the NBA Finals. And I'm not sorry if I offended some of you by saying that. Uh, my baby girl will wear a keep calm and carry on onesie next month when she finally arrives. And you Celtics fans will be reminded of your disappointing loss when she, when she wears it. <laughs> <laughs> so we get how there's like a, like a healthy and gracious comparative spirit like I just showed. Uh, but we also know that there's a toxic one, right? There's a toxic one. And we begin to slip from healthy to toxic when we become overly loyal to our team. I think that partially explains what's happened to the Jewish elders. They've been blinded by a kind of excessive loyalty to their tribe. They've somehow turned the God of Israel into Israel's God, right? Which has then allowed them to create an enemy out of the Gentiles in God's name. And they've somehow narrowed God's incredibly inclusive promise to Abraham that in you, all of the families of the world will be blessed, and they've drawn a line in the sand, like closer and closer around themselves, until they're the only ones left on Team God. And we're guilty of it too. Americans are famous for it. We have a fancy new word for this. We call it polarization. But polarization is just a result of tribalism. And we know that social media only has the potential to make things worse. Like, this problem isn't going away for us, right? Like, the tech gurus have told us that their algorithms are designed to lock us into the media echo chambers of our own choosing, which means as our vision of the world gets smaller, by the the blinders we've decided to put up, like, we're going to start to form even more tribes. So here's the thing. Like, even though we live in this... Uh, in this world of blinding tribalism, like I do think there's hope for us, right? Because Jesus stepped into his hyper-tribalistic world and flipped it just upside down by offering good news to the poor. So there's a way for us to stop acting like hostile owners of the kingdom of God and become become more open to sharing it uh, with whoever God wants to share it with, right? And the key is the kingdom guest mindset that we see modeled in the centurion. So let's look at verses uh, 6 through 10 one more time. Here's the first thing I want you to notice about the centurion. Uh, Notice that he sends friends to Jesus. So Luke uses this word friend more than any other author in the New Testament, like by far. I think he does so because he's a Gentile. And for him, friendship is like the key image for understanding the, kim- the, the kingdom of God as an outsider. So let me, just give you, let me just give you one example of this. Jesus was criticized for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners in Luke 7.34. So his, his religious peers think that Jesus crosses like way too many boundaries, right? You're not supposed to walk across the Jew and Gentile divide, Jesus, like they're unclean. You're, not, you're definitely not supposed to cross the godly sinner t- divide because just being in their presence can damage your reputation. you got to maintain your social distance, Jesus. Wear your mask. You don't have the poor person vax yet. But, like, don't you see? Jesus does the exact opposite of what's expected of him. Like, he doesn't care about the so- social stigmas that are attached to you because he's your friend, right? Friendship in the kingdom of God is border crossing and bridge building. It's about embracing others as your equal, even when they don't have the same social standing as you. It's about finding meaning and purpose and belonging with people who value you for you and not for what you can do for them. It's about honoring people who are just as flawed as you are because both of you have been accepted and claimed by the loving hospitality of Jesus. Right, so the centurion, the centurion lives in this, this upside-down kingdom. Uh, he already sees himself as a guest, a guest among other guests, which is why he has friends. Uh, but it's also why he v- highly values his servant, like it says in verse 2, which is strange, because this servant is either a prisoner of war or from the, the, the underclass of society. Either way, servants aren't valuable, right? They're just they're just dispensable. But not to the Centurion. Not to the Centurion. He becomes a kind of guardian to this underprivileged and disadvantaged slave. I know your translation says, "Just say the word and let my servant be healed" in verse 7, but the Centurion doesn't use the typical word for servant there. The word he uses is more like our word apprentice. Right, refers to somebody you mentor and train because they're going to replace you one day, which means that the centurion has a purpose for his servant that exceeds the expectations of his status. So he treats, so the centurion treats this nobody like a somebody because they're friends. They're friends. Right? And when, you're, when your self-understanding is shaped by this ideal of poorness, that places friendship at its center. Like, it's not hard to see other undesirable people around you who would benefit from the love and care of Jesus. Like, you just expect Jesus to show up in all the wrong places. All the invisible people in ugly neighborhoods and rich and powerful would rather ignore or hide. Like, you see them as perfect places for Jesus' renewing presence. This is why I'm so happy we've added so many new capable and carrying deacons and deaconesses onto our team. Like, you get to lean into our city with the generosity and abundance of Jesus. Like, this story is for you, right? You get to reflect on and pray about our city's visible and invisible undesirables. Discover how we might be the healing presence of Jesus for them. So like, thank you guys. Thank you for saying yes to the spirits leading in your life. I hope that it takes all of us into unexpected places where we can find and appreciate the risen Jesus who's still at work befriending the poor. So this centurion, he embodies the guest-like humility and border-crossing friendships of the kingdom of God. But there's one quality that Jesus points out that truly sets him apart from his religious neighbors. So the centurion makes a comparison in verse 8. He makes a comparison between the power of his word on his soldiers and the power of Jesus' word over sickness. Now, here's what you have to know about ancient medicine. There's uh, no such thing as biological or pathological disease in the ancient world, right? Illness, illnesses are both physical and spiritual because they're seen as being caused by either evil spirits or sins. That's just the, the world they lived in, okay? So when Jesus uh, heals a person's body, an ancient person would see that as a kind of spiritual release too. So Jesus' first century audience would understand that his word is dispelling the spiritual forces of evil. But the centurion, he has a unique insight. He says, I too am a person or a man under authority. So he thinks that Jesus has been delegated this healing power, right? The Roman gods don't delegate power. They provoke their favorite heroes to start wars that'll enrage the other gods, but they don't share their divine powers, which means the centurion senses a new kind of higher power has arisen on the Galilean scene. And not only is this god uniquely with Jesus, uh, but he's confronting the evil that creates disease in the first place And has motivated every act of violence and rebellion in the tragic story we call human history. So Jesus listens to the centurion and marvels at him. And this isn't shock. This is a welcome surprise. It's a pleasant surprise. In fact, it's so on point, Jesus turns around to his other followers just to make sure they didn't miss it. Because the centurion has just spoken the ideal words of faith. That's the final piece of this kingdom guest mindset. It's faith. It's faith. So the Centurion doesn't have a theologically informed faith, right? He didn't go to Jewish seminary or learn Hebrew. He doesn't even pray to the God of Israel. And he certainly doesn't know the origin story of God's family through his promise to Abraham and liberation from slavery out of Egypt. But in this moment, the Centurion, he just trusts, that the God who is with Jesus is a good, generous, and welcoming God. He's a God who takes sides with the poor, a God who privileges socially undesirable people as guests of honor at his feasts, and a God who embraces hurt and wounded people as his friends. Right? That's the kind of God Jesus has represented to the centurion. And in case you've forgotten or like never met him, Like, that's our God, Denver Prez. That's our God. So as we let this story shape us into faithful actors of the kingdom of God, I think we're being invited to receive a kingdom blessing. Because remember, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But you know, at least in the Hebrew Bible, a blessing is also ascending. Right? The first blessing on humanity was be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and rule it, right? So that blessing comes with a task. It comes with a purpose. So uh, I've just gone ahead and written a blessing for us, okay? Uh, Four blessings, actually, that take Jesus' first kingdom blessing and fills it out not only with the meaning of poorness, but with the sending task of poorness that we find in, in Luke 7. So, like, you don't have to stand up or anything, but, like, just hear and receive this blessing, uh, from King Jesus, who wants you to be the royal kings and queens in his kingdom. And then I'm going to read like a prayer poem for us after that. But receive, receive this, this good news. Blessed are you who are poor. In other words, blessed are you who have a deep commitment to welcoming unwanted outsiders in the name of Jesus. Blessed are you who passionately pursue the border-crossing friendships of Jesus so your neighbors would experience his life-altering love and care. Blessed are you who hope in the abundant good news of Jesus to restore justice and peace in disadvantaged neighborhoods first. Blessed are you who trust in the goodness and generosity of Jesus, not only for yourselves, but for your neighbors and even for your enemies. Blessed are you who are poor, humble guests of King Jesus, For yours is the kingdom of God. And I want to finish our time by reading you that prayer poem that I told you about. It's a kind of modern recreation of the oldest piece of poetry that we have in the New Testament. And if you don't know what it is, I am not going to tell you. (laughs) Not because I want you to feel stupid or something. But because I want you to hear this ancient praise song about Jesus' life of poorness as if for the first time. So Denver Prez. Think like Jesus thought, he was every bit God but regarded it not. He made himself nothing, lowering his voice, abandoning choice. He made himself into a man. Becoming a slave, he stooped to the grave by the shame and the pain of a cross. So God lifted him up right to the top, giving him the name and the greatest fame that all will proclaim and loudly exclaim, Jesus Christ, the Lord, overcame all my shame, all my blame, all my pain. So they glorify God because they're amazed by the way God saves. Amen.